Second scripture is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore but Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what he had, they had seen until after the human one had risen from the dead. We celebrate the written word of scripture. Thanks be to God. We celebrate the living word Christ among us. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Holy God, in a world where so much is beyond us, in a world where there are so many things that we don't understand, open our hearts that we might see clearly your word and your will for the world. Amen. In one of her more recent books, Atlas of the Heart, Brene Brown sets out to map the language of human emotion, the language we use to describe what we experience. Where she's coming from is that she says that we have a broad and diverse range of emotional experience, but we don't use the full range of words to describe it. When asked how we feel, most everybody has sad, mad, and happy down pat. But there's so much more to our emotional experience, more variety, more nuance. It's important to see and to name the full range. Putting words to what we feel helps us make meaning of what we experience so that we can live more deeply, more compassionately, more meaningfully. The more variety and nuance we have in our emotional vocabulary, the more we can say and begin to understand. Brown wants to give us tools for what she calls emotional granularity, getting specific and precise about us. And so she's written what she calls an atlas, a map. 
Her team of research psychologists sought first to flesh out and articulate the broad spectrum of emotions, a full and robust vocabulary. And then they set out to map out the terrain, grouping emotions that arise from similar types of experience, the places we go when we experience certain things. So for example, when we are hurting, we don't just go to sadness. We can also name anguish, hopelessness, despair, grief. Maybe I should have picked a happier example. But each of those describes and acknowledges something just a little bit different. One of her groupings is places we go when things are beyond us. When what is before us is so big, so vast, that it is beyond our ability to comprehend. That is what's happening in this morning's scripture. Jesus takes these disciples, Peter, James, and John, up out of their daily world into this mountaintop experience, and things happen. Jesus is transfigured. In the Greek, it is literally he metamorphoses. metamorphoses. He becomes radiant, a luminous, glowing white, so bright that no one on earth could generate such a dazzling brightness. And then it happens. Moses appears, and Elijah appears from centuries ago. And they talk with Jesus, and then it happens. There's a cloud, and then it happens. There's a voice from the cloud. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. And then suddenly in this breathless gospel, it is all over. No Moses, no Elijah, no cloud, no voice, no glow, just Jesus himself alone with them. What has just happened is beyond them, beyond their ability to take it all in and comprehend. So this is where I usually just jump to awe and wonder. That's what I like to talk about on transfiguration, awe and wonder, but I want to get granular because that's not all there is to this experience in this story or in our world. There's so much more complexity to us. There's more complexity to those experiences where what is before us is beyond us. The scripture actually says that the three disciples were terrified, not awestruck. Let's zoom out from the scripture a bit. What is beyond us is not always a dazzling sunset or a comet in the night sky. Before we talk about awe, let's talk for a bit about what it's like when what is beyond our comprehension isn't so shiny and bright. And I go there because in our day, in this moment, I'm hearing folks say often and a lot, it's all too much. I turn on the news and I cannot take it all in. It's all too much. It's just beyond me. I hear you say that. And I feel it too. When I hear us say that in this moment and in this day, I don't think we are talking about awe. Sometimes, in those places where things aren't 
are beyond us, in those places where things are beyond us, what we experience isn't awe, but it's sinister cousin, horror. We can just think about what has happened since October 7th. On October 7th, families on kibbutzes woke up to what they thought would be just another day, and what unfolded was a brutal slaughter of families in their homes and of young people at a concert. A planned, coordinated assault of terror mayhem and the murder of more than 1,200 people. And then, ever since that moment, we have watched and witnessed the brutal slaughter of Gazans. As of February 5th, more than 27,000 Gazans have been killed, the vast majority non-combatants. Even the IDF acknowledges that. More than 10,000 of them children. More than a quarter of the Gazan population, more than half a million people are starving. 85% of the population has been displaced. More than 70,000 housing units have been destroyed. 300,000 damaged. More than 30% of the Gazan population have no home to return to. These are conservative numbers. I pulled those statistics from reports that were outdated almost as soon as they were compiled. The numbers increase by the day as the attacks against Gazans continue unabated and a ceasefire remains elusive. And this morning we read of Rafa, more than a million people, half of Gaza's population has been displaced and forced south and they are taking refuge in Rafa and now we hear that Rafa is the next target of aggression and they are told to free to flee, where will they go? Sometimes, when we experience things that are beyond our comprehension, what we experience is horror. And I want to acknowledge that what I'm talking about is what we are experiencing here, a world away. I can't imagine what it is like to be there right in the midst. We would need to use our trauma words, and I don't know that even they would be enough. Sometimes what is beyond our comprehension is man's inhumanity to humankind. We should experience horror at that. That particular emotion registers and moves us to acknowledge that something is bad, wrong in the world. But we don't have to stop and stay stuck there. If we're going to stay granular and think expansively, other emotions can start to unfold from there. We can experience confusion. I just don't get it. How did we get here? What can we do? We can start to experience overwhelm. That sense of emotional intensity to the point that it feels we, like we can't function. And there are several paths that can appear before us. It's all too easy, given the enormity of things, to spiral down the path of despair into dread and fear. That is one path, and that's real. Or... We could move into denial or avoidance where things are beyond us. We could just start to shut down and withdraw. Those are real things too. That's another path. 
before, when what is before us is beyond us, we have another choice. When what is before us is beyond us, we can look and strain to see even further. We can even, as all the other emotions are swirling around, we can look beyond what is beyond us. That is what Jesus is offering the disciples in this morning's scripture. Remember, the world of the Gospel of Mark is full of its own violence and suffering. Most of Scripture tells of people waiting for the next empire to descend and conquer. I lift up mine eyes to the hills. Where will my help come from? If Peter and James and John's world, and in, in that world, it's the Roman Empire. When Mark was written, the Roman Empire was either about to pull the temple down or they had just done that and they are beating down on the people every day. The Gospel of Mark rushes head, in, head on into the midst of that world breathlessly and Jesus proclaims a new day, the reign of God, a power stronger than every power, nothing less than a reordering of power and the whole world. And for a moment... In this morning's scripture, Jesus takes the disciples up out of this world, all these things that are unfolding that they don't quite understand, and Jesus shows them something even beyond that. In this breath breathless gospel up on that mountain, there is a gasp. Now, just before this morning's scripture, Peter has named that Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus has said, you are correct, and now I must suffer many things and be killed and rise again. Jesus names the suffering of the world with the particularity of his own body and his own life, and then he takes Peter, James, and John up this mountain, and there on that mountain, they see Moses the one who brings the law, God's justice ordering of the world, and they see Elijah, one of the prophets who shows up to announce what God is bringing to an end and the new thing that God is about to do. There on that mountain all around and in Jesus, there is the radiance of an experience of the divine, of the holy God present visibly and vibrantly, palpably, and there is a voice, this, Jesus, this is my son, son of God, the beloved, Beloved, and there is a command, listen to him. In the midst of a bewildering, sometimes horrifying world, we get a glimpse of something bigger, something bigger than the biggest bad things. This scripture points us beyond what is beyond us. It points us to God. Now we've seen this before. We have the tools to look and see something more, to look even further than what is before us and beyond us. Remember the summer that we sent, spent with the Psalms? Remember those psalms of lament, those psalms of lament that give us permission to name the pain in the world, the pain in us, and to wail, even to ask God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then standing in the truth of all that, that those psalms turn us toward the goodness of God. The psalm that begins, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, ends, I am sure of this, I will see the goodness of God in the land of the living. Remember the angry psalms that rail and rage against injustice and suffering and then turn 
to the goodness of God, to the power of God, but you, O God, out of your goodness and your steadfast love, deliver me. That is the cry and the resolve that we find across scriptures in experiences that are beyond us. The anguish is real, and so too is this truth. God is always bigger, always stronger, always moving the world toward justice, healing, and peace. And this is where awe comes in. Awe. The feeling of being in the presence of and part of something vast that transcends our current understanding of the world. Even, even we hope beyond the worst bad thing that is beyond our understanding. That's all well and good, you might say. But what can we do? In the face of the depth of the suffering in the world, what can we do? That is a complicated question, but it is a worthy question, and I hope that we persist in asking it even when the answers elude us or when the answers feel so inadequate to the enormity of what is before us. But let's look for a moment to what Peter, James, and John do in this scripture. I look to them because they are as bewildered as I would have been. They are as bewildered as I sometimes am. Notice first what they don't do. They don't shrink away from what is before them and beyond them. They are frightened, but they do not run. They stay there right in the midst. They feel what they feel, they stand in the experience and they are curious, they wonder, and they engage. Peter does so out loud, they're terrified, but at the same time he says, um, well, it's good for us to be here. And he talks about building tents, he starts groping around for something to do, and I think that's important and lovely. They start to fumble and stumble toward God. It may not be the right answer. It's certainly not a complete answer, but Peter starts moving into and toward the experience and then the glimpse is over and Jesus takes them back down into the messy world. They move back into the midst of things. There are so many things in this world that we will never understand. That is part of being human. But the reality of being human doesn't end there. The reality of being human also includes compassion and courage and truth-telling and agency and perseverance in community. The gospel and this scripture are telling us that the reality of being human in Jesus Christ is so much more than we have ever imagined. What is before us may be beyond our comprehension, but there is something beyond even that. God is always bigger, always stronger, always reordering and willing and moving the world toward justice, healing, and peace. What we can do 
is claim that as our ultimate reality and as our immediate reality right here, right now, and in the midst of things, what we can do is engage the world and move toward that. <laughs>